Drought in Kansas, a changing landscape for meat processing, innovative ways to use dumped milk, and even creative ways to maximize local milk marketing. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress, and if you hear noise in the background, it's because my home studio continues to be surrounded by an active construction zone. In this episode, I'm visiting with P.J. Greekspor, editor of Kansas Farmer, who shares concerns over the worsening drought in her region. And she offers insight on her look at the beef processing industry since Kansas is home to several facilities. Chris Torres, editor of American Agriculturist, shares a crop progress update from the Northeast, then discusses two interesting dairy stories. The first is a unique way to put dumped milk to work, and the other is the story of one dairy that took marketing matters into its own hands with good results. First up, let's head to Kansas to talk with PJ Greekspor. Well, PJ, I guess uh, what I like to do when I start these calls here at uh, Round Farm Progress is to ask my editors how things are going out in the field. But I think you have some news for me that might be a little different than I've been getting lately. Okay, well, I think one, one of the worst things that we're facing right now um, in terms of the crop condition is drought in the western half of the states that normally dry. The western third of the state is in some level of drought, moderate to extreme. The southwest corner is really, really dry. We've had some rain in like through the Flint Hills area, south central Kansas, southeast Kansas is still okay. We've got some pretty darn good looking wheat. Paul Pinner sent me some photos of a field of his of Zenda that just really looks splendid. It's going to be really good wheat. The um, western third has already been, they had dry weather, then they had late freeze. We had late freeze here, but it didn't do that much damage. But between the drought and the freeze in the western third of the state, they're struggling. They're also struggling when it comes to fall crop. They've got corn up under irrigation, but if this summer progresses the way it looks like it's going to right now, it's not going to be a good year for the Oglala Aquifer. Depletion that had been slowed so much by the the wet years that we've had is really, this year could really take a toll on the water table in that aquifer. Yeah, does that also mean then that they might be facing limits in the future on that uh, in your state? So some of them are already facing limits. We, we've got a five-year water right plan that lets them spread their water use over a five-year period, which means that for right now, they can draw on some of the water that they didn't use in the wet years last year and year before. So they may be okay for the beginning of the irrigation season because they've got some inches to spare. The problem we have is that if it, get, if it stays this hot and dry, they've had to irrigate to get corn up, and that's not good. No, that's way, that technically that comes off later in the season like wasted water. You know what I mean? It's like, I wish I didn't have to have done that. So it's crazy. The water situation in Kansas and, of course, Nebraska and eastern Colorado has always been tenuous because of the aquifer. It, it did get some recharge over the last couple of years. This credit system in the five years that's going to run you you're saying that's going to run out really fast this season if it stays hot and dry well yes because they it's not like you don't use any water at all when you right. have a season where you can use less water you just use less which means that you have a percentage of mm. your right that you can still add to this year but that it's a percentage it's not like adding all of last year's water right to this year's water right and that 20 percent reduction thing is going to stand in the lima areas the locally enhanced management areas those are 20 percent reduction no matter what happens right. so they, they can't go back to you know what they would have pumped if they could have well and that brings up a real quick question i mean i'm going to diverge a minute here but with those kinds of 
non-acquisition or very tight water use areas, are you seeing more and more growers turning to soil moisture and potentially other types of sensor systems to be better at managing their water? Oh, absolutely. The water technology farms here have just taken off. The The use of sensor probes, the use of timed irrigation, the, the use of variable rate irrigation, all of the technologies are in play. Uh, mobile drip. So they're, mm. they're doing everything they can to save every drop of water that it's possible to save. And we've known that the real risk is what happens if we have prolonged or multiple years of deep drought. It can bang right into your water use pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting when you start talking about the technologies, we're talking subsurface drip, drip mobile drip, um, you're right. LEPA systems. Uh, no one's using high pressure anymore. So that's fat. That's great news. But yeah, the use of water, I think if a consumer were listening to this podcast, I think they would find that the amount of corn or wheat we can get off an acre per inch of water is so different than it was just five years ago. It's amazing. When Tom Willis first started the, the water technology farm was one of the experimenters in, in the right. water technology farms. And, and he said that it took everything in him not to turn the pivot on, uh, like to manually override the system because he was used to turning that pivot on in April and shutting it off in September and it just ran. And he said, you know, I'd look at it and sensor probes were telling it not to turn on. It hadn't been turned on in two or three days. And I would go out and start double checking, moisture probing. And no, actually, no, I don't need water. Um, the crop doesn't need water. Psychologically, I think I should turn it on, but... <laughs> Change is hard for everybody, but yes, these technologies are paying off. Uh, change is hard in another part of our industry, and one that I think you've covered in your June issue. I think farmers looking for that in their mailboxes, uh, and also these have been online, so they can be searched out. You've been looking at the meat processing industry. Now, why does, why are you talking about that in Kansas? Walk me through that. Okay. Well, Kansas has four major processing plants, um, all of that uh, western part of or mostly in the western part of Kansas. We have Cargill and National Beef in Dodge City. We have uh, National Beef in Liberal. We have Tyson in Garden City. We have a smaller Tyson plant in Emporia. We have Creekstone Farms in Arkansas City. So we have a lot of beef processing in the state of Kansas. We have a lot of coronavirus in the western Kansas processing plants. The rate of contagion in the in Dodge City. Ford County has 33,000 residents and uh, really pushing hard on 2,000 cases of coronavirus. If population-wise we translated that to like Sedgwick, Co Sedgwick County, we'd be talking 20,000 cases. So population-wise, that is really a strong load of coronavirus. Fortunately, those people tend to be younger and healthier. We haven't had, the death toll hasn't been like nursing homes. We are still a little bit anxious. We tend to have large, close-knit families. So what will the community spread turn out to be? We're not far enough into this to know the answer to that question yet. All it takes is one visit to grandma, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's not talk about that. I finally got to see my grandchildren recently. But the, but yeah, <laughs> and I think I forget, you know, we forget historically, it wasn't Kansas at the end of the Chisholm Trail. Cattle would yeah. come up from Texas and be processed in, you know, and moved off in to the markets in the east, Chicago from Kansas. But now they decided to put the processing in Kansas. Where the feedlots <laughs> are, where the corn is grown. So yeah, those those processing plants, the, in terms of, I started talking about this, having a conversation with, with uh, Daniel Sullivan at Cargill, where we were kind of brainstorming on what comes next. And I asked the question of, will this permanently change the processing industry? Um, and the answer may very well be yes. 
you know, we have people that are very careful in the plants, but it is a very close-packed, intense, fast-moving operation. And it was a very intense, fast-moving operation. (laughs) Whether or not we'll get rid of this particular virus or the threat of this virus in a timely fashion that will enable us to say, whew, dodge that one and go back to the way things were, or whether we will be permanently afraid of reinfection, starting this up again, that will create a slowdown that may last a long time. And that will, of course, reverberate throughout the processing industry, the the meat retail industry, the cattle raising industry. If we can't process, as if we lose processing capacity to something like this virus, then how do we regain the amount of meat that we put on the market? Some people would argue that we've been putting too much meat on the market anyway, but the people with fat cattle that they're trying to sell would not be in total agreement with that statement. And neither would a grocery shopper finding okay. those empty shelves. You or know, that at $10 hamburger. The processing industry doesn't want that any more than the beef industry does because that just wrecks demand all the way around the curve. So, and definitely. then on the flip side, we have our smaller processors that some of them do specialty stuff like grass-fed or mm-hmm. hormone-free, organic, whatever. But none of them have the ability to take up the slack in any significant way. They are largely sized to process what they've expected to process, which is almost a friends and family market. Um, And they, you know, locker locker plants like Stroots at Mulvane uh, have just been inundated, Yoder meats at Yoder, with people looking to process, well, I can buy this animal from a farmer. Can you process it for me? And Chad Bontrager at Yoder Meats says, you better have your processor lined up before you buy that animal because right. you could be wondering what to do with it for a very long time. They're they're taking custom uh, beef processing orders into April of 2021. So that, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for some of those niche people to expand if we have less processing capacity in the big concentrated plants. Maybe we will see people like Cargill or National look to have more smaller plants in more locations to try to dodge an issue like having one plant. I mean, that discussion came up after the fire at Tyson had such reverberating effects throughout the industry. It was like, oh, one plant going down can kind of cause chaos everywhere. Fortunately, there was nothing else happening to other plants at the time of the Tyson fire. So the whole supply chain was able to kind of flex and come back to normal. I think the other side of this, let's look at the demand side of this. The consumer now is more cognizant of the food supply than they've been in a while. I know there's been activist groups and small parts of the uh, consumer that have always been about local food, but I think they're looking at, hey, I can't get this from Walmart. No offense to Walmart, they're doing all they can. I can't get this from Walmart. I wanna go to Yoder Meats and do something. Well, Yoder's got meat maybe, but they can't process my animals, so that's an issue. But now I'm thinking to myself, well, how can we solve this? And I don't know if maybe groups might get together and go fund me small processing plants. Anything is possible in a market that's in flux. So I'd be yes. curious to see how it goes out. And it's, it's bringing change to areas that have been very, very reluctant to change. PJ Greasemore, editor of Kansas Farmer. It's been great to talk to you today. Keep up the good work. Keep ahead of it. And we'll be checking back with you in the future on these developments. You have a great day and stay safe. You too. Thank you, Willie. The beef processing industry will see changes for sure, and it will be interesting to watch how those unfold. Meanwhile, in the Northeast, the weather has not been kind, nor has the dairy market. 
Chris Torres tackles both in our conversation. And if you hear a little added chatter in the background, pay no mind, it's just Chris's sons taking on the computer game Fortnite. Let's hear what Chris has to share. Well, Chris, it's good to catch up with you out east. Why don't we start with a planting or a spring season update uh, out there? Um, I know that the weather there has been a little different than the weather in some parts of the country. What's going on where you are? Well, farmers are starting to get caught up now, thank goodness, but emergence is really slow. So it was out here in in late April and early May. It was very, very wet. And along with that, it was very cold. Um, You know, we had a couple days, a couple days in early May where it got all the way down into the 20s, the low 20s. And, and of course, you know, that's just not the type of weather. It was very wet late April. And then, you know, and then you get into very cold weather in May. It put growers behind about two to three weeks. So, uh, but growers are catching up. I just read the numbers this week and uh, the amount of corn planted here in Pennsylvania, about 80% is in the ground right now. So that's right around the five-year average, but only 36% has actually emerged. And that's well behind the five-year average. Soybeans are actually on time now. About half the soybean crop here in this state is planted. As you go further south in Delaware and Maryland, you know, growers are a little bit ahead there because, of course, the weather is warmer. New York State, they're still behind. It seems like every year New York State is behind. But they're actually doing better this year than they did last year, just to give you an idea. Right now, about half of the corn crop in New York is planted. Last year at this time, less than 30% was planted at right around this time. Um, you know, it was very wet and very cold for a very extended period of time up there in the Empire State. About 40% of the soybeans are planted up there, although, you know, soybean acreage is not, they don't really have much soybean acreage, and 10% of the winter wheat is actually headed up there. So things are going in the right direction, and uh, the crops are getting in, plants are starting to emerge, and uh, farmers are getting back on track. Well, that brings up a good question, though. You said it was in the 20s in April and May. Isn't that when trees are fruiting? That what happened there? <laughs> well, what happened there was, uh, well, it, two things happened. What happened was that you had a really warm early April, mm-hmm. and then right in the middle of April, you had a cold spell. What happened was that in, in a lot of these areas, Adams County, which is west of where I'm at, is really called the Fruit Belt of Pennsylvania. What happened there is you had a temperature inversion, and you actually had um, a lot of the trees. Um, the temperature inversion is a lot of the trees in that situation, a lot of the trees that are at a higher elevation actually do better than trees that are at a lower elevation. That's exactly what happened in areas out there in Adams County. But other than that, there was another cool down in the beginning of May. And that cool down was even more serious because, you know, at that point, that first cool down wasn't as widespread. The cool down in May was actually more widespread. And it was more widespread across the state, got down in the 20s. And that that cool down coincided with the fact that those trees were a lot further ahead. As those trees mature, as they, you know, as they get past petal fall, you know, they're going to be a lot more susceptible to to cold injury. And, and that's exactly what happened. So you had a lot of cold injury out there in Adams County, uh, a lot of cold injury in Franklin County. So. We're just going to see how it's going to how it's going to affect the apple crop. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is one of the top five apple producing states in the country, so you know this could be this could be a big thing this year. Peaches as well. That's not great. You're kind of in the part of the world which has had a lot of issues. Um, mm-hmm. The other area, of course, is we've been uh, dumping milk. That's not a good thing because milk you don't just dump milk. Milk must be properly handled when you don't send it to market. It's considered a waste. Um, but you've got to deal out in Pennsylvania where I can do something different with the milk I get rid of rather than just throw it throw it in the uh, disposal. <laughs> yeah, they're actually using it as manure um, in a way. You know, yeah, but it smells idea. the same. Yeah, it smells worse, actually. I've smelled it and it actually smells worse. So um, in late April, the, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture actually approved, and this was just a temporary thing, they actually mm-hmm. approved farmers 
they allowed farmers to actually dump milk directly on the land mixed with dairy manure. And uh, and that's something that, that usually farmers are not allowed to do because um, even though the nutrient value of milk is actually much higher than manure, it contains about 44 pounds of nitrogen, 18 pounds of phosphorus, which is higher than actual just straight dairy manure. The problem with it is that it's, it's a lot more um, susceptible to runoff. So your setbacks to, to water sources has to be much has to be um, much greater. You know, it's not a thing that dairy farmers do often. And honestly, dairy farmers are shipping it off anyway to get money for it. But in this case, they've actually allowed some dairy farmers, um, you know, if, if they would want to, to actually do that. And they actually extended that out to early August. So, um, you know, farmers have, you know, they, they're allowed to do that until early August if they need to, to go ahead and uh, dump the, the milk into the manure pits. And that's usually what they do. They usually just dump the dump the milk right into the manure pits. And that actually creates another issue because, you know, these manure pits are, are designed, when they design them on these dairy farms, they're only designed to hold them for a certain period of time. You put milk in there along with a lot of that manure that's already going in there, you're going to have to be spreading a lot sooner than what you probably would want to spread. So that creates other issues, but we'll just have to see how it goes. I mean, the whole feeling, and, and I was actually talking to a couple guys, is maybe this will give me, maybe, you know, I mean, just a nutrient value alone um, might be good enough for them to go ahead and spread it because if you're not going to spread it, all you're going to be doing is uh, is dumping it at this point because there still is quite a bit of dumping going on. So, you know, it might be an option for some farmers, but not for all. The other side of this and the dairy side, and, and we've talked about this before, is that if I'm not dumping it, I might process it on my farm and sell direct to the consumer. And you did a story on, what is it, Whoa Nelly yeah. uh, a while back. <laughs> tell, tell me about what they're up to. And, and I mean, we're starting to see more and more of these kinds of stories around the country. I talked to Brad Hare down in Southeast Farm Press about an innovative uh, fruit and vegetable grower that put together $20 boxes and the cars lined up for miles. I believe the same thing happened with Whoa Nelly, didn't it? Yes, it did. So the deal with Will Nelly a couple of years ago, they actually started on farm processing on a smaller scale and they had a vat. Um, I think they had a vat that was uh, I think it was a 30 pound vat, if I'm not mistaken, or 30 gallon vat, whatever it was. And that vat, because of their production, wasn't able to take all of their all of their milk. They were with DFA at the time, I believe. Right, right. So what happened was that they they just they just processed on farm, a small percentage of their milk. What happened back in, in April, um, their bottler, which is located out in Pittsburgh, they had indicated to others that they were likely going to go ahead and, and stop um, and drop some of these farms because, you know, it was just getting to the point where, you know, there was just too much milk on the market. Unfortunately for Will and Nelly, they were one of the farms that got dropped. It's a great story because, you know, they actually came in luck because they had ordered a pasteurizer in January. They got that pasteurizer that same week that they were being dropped by this bottler. So it was right on time. They were able to to make more milk, process, pasteurize more of their milk there on the farm. And they, they had lines for about three or four weeks there. They had car lines going back two miles. Well, Nelly is about – I believe they're about 20 or 30 minutes out south of Pittsburgh. I mean they, they had people from the city. They had people – they told me that they had people from as far away as uh, as Lancaster. Lancaster to Pittsburgh is about a four-hour drive. So, you know, it's it's that's 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 quite a drive away. And they had people from, from all the way out in this area where I'm at go to their farm. And the thing with their milk is that they have something called cream-lined milk. I don't know if you've ever had cream-lined milk. It's essentially milk that hasn't been homogenized. So what happens is that – the cream it does what it to, used to do. It does it, what it used to do. It settles to the top, right? Settles the to the top, does. right? Yeah, settles to the top, uh-huh. and uh, and it's it's delicious. I have not. I've had cream lined milk a long time ago. I had it. I never had it from this farm, 
of course, with us being you know locked down, I wasn't able to actually go out there. I had to do a phone interview. But um, I have had cream-lined milk from some farms, and it's delicious. And they've been – I just checked up on them a couple, about a week ago, and they still have the lines. And the great thing about that story, the uh, the wife of the, of the dairy farmer who's very involved in, in the dairy farm herself – um, she had she has cancer, you know, having this having this outlet for her to, to work because they're working 24 seven right now, seven days a week, having this outlet to actually work and and be busy is actually very, very good for her. And they're doing very, very well from what I understand. And it's a lot of work. They do have some part time people, but they're doing very well with it and they're still getting the lines. And they have a uh, they, they have a vat that's going to be coming in the fall. That's twice as big as the one that they that they have right now. So. They hope by the fall that they'll be catching a break, but until then they're going to be busy. But I think they're they're pretty happy with it. <laughs> this is great that Bonelli did this. Fantastic for the family. But what did they? How did they let people know they were even doing this? Was this a social media push, or how did they do that? It was just a social media push. Social media push, and also wow. um, social media push, and also just word of mouth. Um, yeah. They're very well known out in that area. They have a little agritainment thing, not a big thing, but they do have a little right. agritainment thing going on. And uh, and what happened was that they actually put out a social media post just essentially saying, listen, we just got dropped by our processor. We have milk available and people just heard of it. And uh, and, I, and I believe they were going to dump their milk. They were going to have to dump their milk if they didn't if they couldn't you know, get people to come out and and buy it. And the people around the community just said, you know, well, we're going to go down there. We're going to buy some of this milk. And and that's really – I mean you hear it time and time again, and I'm sure you probably heard it from the other, from the other editors. As all these issues with our, uh, with our food system that have come up the last couple of, of months here, the demand for, for locally grown and on-farm products has just skyrocketed. I've done podcasts of a couple of young farmers in Maryland that they can't, uh, they can't keep up with, with customers just, just coming onto the farm and buying products. This is sort of another example of that. I mean, they're they're selling out of their of their flavored milks, you know, right as they make it, they're selling out within two hours. Wow. So you know, it's just it's incredible. Um, are they keeping up with their cows' production? I mean, are they selling out what they can? Are they or do they produce more than they can sell? I mean, it's a good sized dairy. I just wondered if they could keep up with that too. Oh no, I think they they're keeping up with that. Right. <laughs> well, that's selling, good news. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're they're keeping up with it. And uh, but but again, I mean, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's it's forcing Absolutely. them to work, you know, pretty much the entire day, seven days a week. And uh, but they're willing to do it, and they're committed to doing it until until they get the larger vat. And uh, you know, I guess as long as they're as long as they're doing well, they're gonna they're gonna continue doing it. Yeah, it sounds like old fashioned dairy right now, seven days a week. That's for yes. sure. Yes. Um, it's like, yes. Well, but it's a little bit. Going, we're all a little bit going back in time with about some things that we're doing. That's for sure. Yeah, well, Chris we? Torres, Chris <laughs> Torres of American Agriculture, it's been good to talk to you today. I want to remind everybody listening, Chris does have his own podcast. The American Agriculturist Young Farmer Podcast. It's one of several at Farm Progress. And later in this podcast, I will give you a link for where you can go find all of our shows. Chris, good to talk to you again, sir. Stay safe and keep on reporting what's going on in the Northeast. Okay. Thanks, Willie. Thanks to PJ Greeksport, Kansas Farmer, and Chris Torres at American Agriculturist for your insights and perspective. We appreciate the work you do in your parts of the country. Around Farm Progress is our newest podcast looking at agriculture with the help of our national team. But we have some other podcasts you may find interesting, like Down in the Weeds with Tyler Harris of Nebraska Farmer, which deals with a range of ag issues. Or the American Agriculturist Young Farmer podcast, where Chris Torres, editor of American Agriculturist, shares insights in ag from the next generation. You can find links to those podcasts and the daily updates from Max Armstrong, 
at farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. Again, farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. It's worth checking out. And we continue our in-depth coverage of all things regarding COVID-19 at farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and of course, the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.